This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Yo. Yo, y'all terrorist niggas know that boy who go by the name D's? D's? Yeah, these nuts. So we've made it, Van. We have made it to season four. Yes. Yeah, man. It's uh, It's been a journey. I guess we're more than halfway through this whole thing. Right, because season four—I mean, it's five seasons, right? So yeah, we're more than halfway through. Yeah, we're more than halfway through. There. Yeah, this is this is the home stretch that we're getting into, and you know, there's a lot that goes on in season four, and it's almost—it's—I I don't know if it—it's not as stark of a reset as season one to season two, but it is a significant reset, wouldn't you say? I think it is. So there was, we all know that there was some time taken off. How long exactly was it between season three and season four? I believe it was almost two years. Yeah. Right. And knowing that, plus just feeling the tone of it, it you can tell. There's definitely a tonal shift in the way the show moves to me. It feels like that, but then at the same time, the first couple of episodes of a Wire season always move a little bit quicker because you're getting to know so many characters and it always seems like it's just jumping, you know, blah, blah, bam, meet this person, meet that person, meet this person, meet that person. But because you're seeing so many young faces on the screen when you first start season four, it does feel like to a degree you're looking at a different show. And then, you know, the characters come off different. Carve is smiling a lot and dealing with people in a different way. Everyone seems so far removed from where they were at the end of season three, that it almost feels like they picked up two years after. Yeah. I mean, it, it does. It's one of those things where they're trying to kind of getting us to move on to another major institutional failure, or at least combining it to the rest of the institutional failures that we already have become accustomed with. We know that the police, that that's an institutional failure. We know that politics is sort of broken and they're going to take a deeper dive into that. And now we're getting a glimpse of the educational system. That's where the third pivot comes from, which those things are all very tied together. So it's, um, you know, it's just really interesting to see how he just is able, David Simon is able to seamlessly like weave these institutions together to the point where you kind of get just how they're interconnected, which is one of the many things I've always appreciated about The Wire. So typically, as people who listen to this podcast on a regular basis know, is that we do a character deep dive and a recap. Now, we are going to do a recap, but I thought just in terms of order, um, rather than doing a character deep dive, because you're, you know, much like every typical first episode of The Wire in every season or first two episodes, they throw a lot of new characters at you. And so it's important that we sort of lay out for you guys what some of the new characters that you see, not necessarily a deep, a deep dive, but just pointing out who these new faces are that are now present and will be major storylines in season four. And then we'll get to recap what happens. So here we have a lot of new people, again, who are, we're being introduced to. Norman, Carcetti's uh, deputy campaign manager. Yeah. Yeah, who, I don't know if this is good or bad, or, or I don't know how to characterize it, but I now think of him more related to House of Cards than I do The Wire. Never watched House of Cards. Okay, so in House of Cards, he plays this barbecue restaurant owner who's very close to Kevin Spacey's character. And so I kind of now think of, uh, of Reginald Cathy in that respect for some reason. And on the street level, you just got a whole lot of new faces. Introducing the kids who... These four kids will become kind of the centerpiece of season four. You have Naaman, you have Randy, Michael, and Daquan, a.k.a. Dookie. So those are four new major faces um, that are the foundation of The Wire. And I have to say, as, as kid actors, you know, th this is some of the most phenomenal acting that I've seen from people of that age. Yeah, they deliver. 
Yeah. They really do. Shout out to Polito and Mac and all of those guys and Jermaine. Uh, they, 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 and Maestro, Maestro. I always want to call his brother. It's Maestro or Maestro? It's Maestro. It's Maestro. Anyway, who plays, who plays, who plays, um, who plays Randy? By the way, all super, super talented guys right now. They're around here in Hollywood. Everyone's still working, doing great things. Shout out to all of those guys. They are incredibly talented. And really, a lot of times with The Wire, it takes you a little while to kind of catch up to some of the real, because some of the people that are in The Wire aren't acting, right? They're being themselves, and it takes you a while to kind of catch up with the rhythm uh, rhythms of that, especially when they're in scenes with uh, more trained actors. But not with these kids. They jumped right in. They have it down pat as far as the the layers, like a blanket to the show and everything else. Right away, every single scene they're in, they're adding value. And with a show like The Wire, right, it's very, it's almost precarious. I wonder how it was like for them to inject children into the storyline. Because when you see a child's face on screen or anywhere, you start to think innocence, you start to think about everything that they don't know. And The Wire is normally a show about everything that the characters do know. Even though these systems and things like that that we talk about in The Wire are consistently failing, the people that are inside of them have an intimate knowledge of them for the most part. And this is the most that we're going to spend with kids since Wallace and Poot and Bodie, who never, ever felt as childlike as these kids do. Maybe Wallace, but they never felt like they were as childlike as these kids do. And we're going to drill down on that point more in, in just a moment after going through the recap, because I think that's such a great observation to make about the level of innocence that's brought to season four that we really hadn't seen to this point, I think, in in The yeah. Wire. I was trying to remember this, and, you know, I don't know if, if, if you know, if you have a firm answer. So Narice, who is the council president, is somebody who makes an appearance in this one. I think this is the first time that we've gotten a glimpse of her. I think so, but I'm not totally positive. I'm not either, but I think it is, though. I think it is. Okay, so you have Narice, who, as the series develops, particularly, I think, later on in this season and definitely in season five, becomes a, a real, you know, kind of important character in the entire political landscape. All right, so for here's our recap of this episode where you get to catch up on some old faces and then, of course, you're greeted with some new faces. So now, Barksdale's are done. This is Marlowe's world. Post-Barksdale, the Barksdale apocalypse has happened. Yes. Um, Marlo has the territory. He's got the product. He's got the goons and Chris and Snoop. But at least so thus far, none of the drama that murder brings because he's been cleverly hiding the bodies in the row houses. Um, the only, the last of the Barksdales, and they're not actually Barksdales, but of that regime are Bodie and Slim Charles. They're the last OGs kind of standing. Um so uh, right away, and The Wire's really good at this, they take what, in the larger scheme of, of say, urban crime or inner city crime, what would be just, just a murder. And they are able to build off of that until it becomes something that... The first crack in a whole foundation falling yep, down. Yep. Totally. That has far-reaching effects. So right away, as you learn the new faces and where the old faces are, boom, you have a murder on your hands because fruit the same one who confronted Cuddy, the same one who Cuddy let live when he could have easily dropped him, is murdered by Lex, who is an associate of, of Bodie and over a woman, right? So Right, and it, who is an independent as well, doesn't have any support. Bodie's right now independent, so it's not like this is Barcelona, um, Barcelona um, uh, Stansfield sort of situation. The Barcelona's are gone. It's also not Stanfield on Stanfield because Marlowe has the whole situation, so this is not, he did this, with no backing, which means he's fucking crazy. He was he lost his mind to go after one of Marlowe's guys. But so that that's a big, huge thing because he's out there on his own doing something emotionally. Right. Very big. Uh, and I'm glad you used the word independent. So the Barksdale's like used to be McDonald's and now they're like the cute little cafe on the corner. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right. It's yeah. a tremendous step down. This is easily the weakest we've ever seen them. And I don't even know if you can even call them the Barksdales anymore. This is the weakest that we've seen people connected with uh, the Barksdale regime. No, they are. They're fast track. You don't know. I bet you don't know what fast track is. Is that the the gross, uh, not the, the gas station? Mm -mm. Well, that's racetrack. 
Oh. Back in Baton Rouge, we had this, this delightful little fast food chain, a local fast food chain. Fast track drive through is all you do. Beep, beep. And like fast track was dope. The double cheeseburger, the double bacon cheeseburger at Fast Track. You had the chocolate shake at Fast Track. All amazing, right? Could Fantastic. You, could you get a daiquiri there? Because that's how I feel like every Louisiana I don't could. think you could get a daiquiri at Fast Track. Maybe. Maybe you could. But I don't think you could get a daiquiri at Fast Track. But what happened was there was Fast Tracks everywhere for a while. It was at least a couple of Fast Tracks. And they had these little special buildings that were made specifically to be Fast Tracks. Because you couldn't go inside. It was just a drive through Right. Before I had the time, drive through is all you do, beep beep. After a while, fast track just started disappearing. But there was one fast track left out in Sunshine. It was an independent fast track that, if you wanted it really bad, that you had to drive all the way south to Sunshine and go to that one fast track. And that's what Bodie is now. He is the one fast track that is left. Used to have commercials. Now, all he got is word of mouth. That's all, That's where he's at. Bodie, a.k.a. Fast Track. I love it. <laughs> On the political scene, Carcetti, who has jumped into the mayoral race, is a little frustrated about the lack of progress in his campaign. And it's more taxing on him than he realized it could be, especially since he's not seemingly as motivated as he was before because I think he is getting a little disillusioned and discouraged about his chances to actually win this race. So you're sort of seeing him slide into a little bit of apathy uh, in this episode. Now, uh, here's what's new from where we left off in, in season three. McNulty is now a beat cop. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? He's just, he's officer friendly. <laughs> that is McNulty. Yeah, and enjoying it. Um, and enjoying it, right. Like, this is... I mean, there's different phases of McNulty that we have seen. We certainly see self-righteous McNulty. We have seen destructive McNulty. But this McNulty that we get in this episode is the happiest McNulty I think we've seen at this point. Is that not a stretch to say? Yeah. I mean, to me, every scene that you see him in, he's smiling like goddamn Jack Nicholson in, in, in Batman. You know, every scene that you see him in, he's beaming. McNulty is, has at this point, he has really acquiesced to his new life. He has completely adapted. He loves it. He's fishing trapper keepers out of the trash can in order to give bring the kids home something for school supplies and stuff like that. He seems content. He seems like whatever he was missing before in every other season of the show, at least for the moment, he's found it. And he subtly drops in here something that they had kind of been leading up to in very subtle ways is him and BDR together now. And so they have been dropping little breadcrumbs. And then, you know, suddenly, if you were, if people recall how season three or one of the things I think that happened in season three is the time where he thought he saw her, but it wasn't her. And I think season three ends with him coming to her house. Well, yeah, he shows up at her house and she's out there. This is where that impromptu visit led to them actually being together. Daniels is now a major and he's in charge of the Western. He's replaced Bunny Colvin. And even though they spent pretty much all of season three at each other's necks, he couldn't quite get rid of McNulty. When we last left things in season three, McNulty and Daniels, it seemed to be there was going to be no way that those two could ever get along again. Like it was done. And bridge wasn't just burnt. It was just completely nuked. Right. There was no bridge. <laughs> yeah, right. There was no bridge at all. And then. What do you know? There is a little bit of the thaw has chilled. It has eased a little bit. And so McNulty, he couldn't quite get rid of him. And he's actually asking him to kind of return to what he is so good at. And McNulty resists. <laughs> okay. Right. Doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to go back to his old life. So those two, their relationship is is somewhat in a decent place. But as always, it's something that bears watching because it does quite change with the temperature. Prez is now a teacher, which uh, is a completely unexpected twist. They don't really put a, uh, I mean, they put somewhat of a bow on him, oh, murdering a fellow officer, I guess. If, um, and you talk about things that age the best. Uh, cops not actually going to jail for killing people definitely ages well. So Or blinding them. Or blinding them. So prayers at this point, he's blinded a man, uh, blinded a boy rather, killed a man, and now he's a teacher because life just moves on. 
he's gone he's gone to a different level of public servant. Now he's serving your kids. Yes, because that's exactly the appropriate place for somebody with Press's track record. I'm not gonna be too hard on him, but like let's I was just you, you know, the funny thing is at the time I remember watching this and thinking, isn't that a little real unrealistic? But now I'm like, no, that's totally realistic. I know it works. Yeah, kind of works. It, it it fits. It's on brand. Okay. Uh detailed has a new lieutenant who could not be more unlike <laughs> Lieutenant Daniels. He, you know, basically is uninterested as Kima, Lester, and Sidner, they're the last of the of the details regime, kind of left there to carry on the details mission. But they have a new lieutenant now who couldn't be less interested in them actually doing police work. He's interested in his beach house. Yes. I like that man. That man got a beach house coming. He's looking at the plans. They know how to work him and use him to get what they want to help help with the beach. He's, he's worried about that goddamn beach house. I like that. Yes. So once again, bureaucracy. Gotta love it. Herc is now on the mayor's detail. <laughs> so he's in a different spot trying to move up the, the ladder. And you said this uh, a moment ago, Carver smiling, not just smiling. Carver has turned into a real police. Right. Yeah, he has street relationships. He like, you know, when he he th- this time when he rolls up on Bodie, this is probably the only time he's ever rolled up on him and not put his foot in his ass. He actually rolls up on him and has a conversation. Conversation with him. Har- Carver is taking to heart what Bunny Colvin told him to do. He's saying, listen, you have to be more engaged and more tethered to the communities out there that serve you. So when you go out there, you're not just busting heads, that you know who to rely on when you need information. And that's what he's doing to the kids and specifically to Bodie, who he's beat the fuck out of several times. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's amazing looking at that relationship considering just, I mean, and God bless Bodie, he must have strong bones because we didn't see him take some ass whoopers and he's been just fine. (laughs) But look, don't you get the feeling that there was always some sort of kinship between Carver and Bodie? They like, like, I think in that situation, Carver always in, Carver always respected the fact that Bodie could really, really kick ass. And Bodie even said it one time. Bodie said, hey, you know, y'all good. Y'all, y'all dope at thumping on niggas, but y'all know nothing about these sandwiches or, or, or nothing with the pull stick or whatever. So it seemed like there was always some sort of mutual respect between Bodie and Carver, and really Bodie and most people. You know, Bodie, Bodie is who he is. And I think at the at a baseline, all those police officers who are who they are. They respect that to a degree. Yeah, they they did have a, I think a mutual respect is right. I mean, I think they both had kind of resigned themselves to, it kind of is what it is. Like, my job is to sell drugs. Your job is to keep me from selling drugs. And we just in this kind of forced, crazy work relationship of, <laughs> that is, you know, they're going to wind up building some level of rapport because it's like, hey, you busting me every five minutes and we're in each other's company. And it's just kind of is what it is. Like, I, I get it. It strangely, it reminds me of, the relationship when I was a sports reporter and in and out of locker rooms uh, that you wind up building with with athletes, not as adversarial as that is, but there is some level of, you know, kind of contentiousness between the media and the people that we cover. Yeah, because we're always asking intrusive questions that they don't want to answer. And especially after wins and losses uh, or really after losses, how we can be critical. But at the end of the day, we all come in there like, all right, you got a job to do. I got a job to do. And you wind up building a rapport, even if it, there's going to be times where you can't stand each other. It's just kind of what it is. Can I ask you a side, a Van Lathan sidebar question? Ooh. It's a question. So I always wondered about this. So the athletes are on the field, right? Because you're up in Detroit. So did you cover, I mean, you covered like the Lions, right? No, well, I did a little bit of the Lions, but my main beat was I covered actually Michigan State football and basketball. Michigan State football and basketball. Correct. So Michigan State football, the Kirk Cousins era. No, I was I was before then. I I covered so when I covered Michigan State, it, this was ninety nine to two thousand and five. Nick Saban era. Um, I got the last year of Nick Saban before he left for LSU, right. and I got the year that Michigan State won the national championship in two thousand and went to three straight Final Fours. So basketball was rolling. Football was kind of a disgrace. So when you <laughs> when you cover these athletes. I always wondered about covering athletes, right? Because this is what I always wonder about, seriously. Because we can talk as much as we want about what we think about sports and stuff. But I always wonder what it would be like for me to cover, like, Neil deGrasse Tyson. 
let's say I had to cover <laughs> Neil deGrasse Tyson and and then like ask Neil deGrasse Tyson questions about things that he made, the mistakes that he made. At, at some point, doesn't just Neil deGrasse Tyson turn around and go, yo, I'm actually a fucking astrophysicist. How can you talk to me about, and I always wonder that, specifically when I'm watching Skip Bayless. <laughs> I'm always wondering, he is so opinionated and writing in this stuff, he's never not once in life played at the level that these guys played at by the time, you know, he averaged like three points a game like when he was in, 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 the, in the 10th grade or something. We'll have to go back over that. But like, do they ever, is that the crux of the thing with you guys and them? They see, they see you as on the other side of a line, maybe? Yeah, they resent us questioning their judgment. But here's the thing, though, Van. All right. Let's take uh, the Seattle New England Super Bowl where they didn't give Marshawn Lynch the ball on the one-yard line, right? You don't have to be a coach of 30 years, <laughs> right? You know what I'm saying? It's like, you just don't. You know it's certain shit that's just common fucking sense. And right. so this was always my approach and my, my mentality. I'm not going into a situation pretending like I know more than the people I'm talking to. So when I ask them a question, it's not, I'm not trying to lead the witness or insert my opinion. So in that instance that I just threw out there, that example, the simple question to Pete Carroll is, what why? made you, de- why? What made you yeah. decide to throw a pass on the one yard line when Marshawn Lynch has been pretty effective all game? Now, that's not me saying I know more than Pete Carroll, but that's a question that literally everybody at home is thinking. So your job is to ask the questions that um, allow them to answer to the questions that the fans have. And that's not to say, like, even if you you don't know as, as much as the people that you're covering, there are certain things that you see that we all can see. Uh, you know, in the playoffs when, uh, like with the Clippers, we just saw them all collapse, okay? They collapse. It is what it is, right? And it's like, you got to ask Doc Rivers, who has blown 3-1 leads before. Right. Yo, why you keep blowing 3-1 leads? Although I will give him a pass on one, because the one he blew to the Pistons, they were an eight seed that year. The Pistons were the one seed. So it's like, that's a little, okay. They were they were playing with house money. They weren't supposed to win that series, right? So that one's a little bit more excusable, but you do have to ask him the question, which is what everybody else is thinking is, how the hell do you blow a 3-1 lead and how do you look so tired when y'all been low managing and you had two months off down the stretch? Fair right. question. Yep. So yep. those are questions of fairness and of like, okay, why? And not necessarily me telling Doc Rivers, yo, I know more about basketball than you. And some reporters do that. They try to tell the coach what their strategy should be. Nope. I'm trying to figure out why did you make this decision? And then we could go from there. So, but Work. good question though. Appreciate that. Sad um, so, <laughs> hey, look, and they don't like that. They do not like being, you know, sort of called out in, in in their mind. So let's just talk about season four and where this fits in the whole pantheon of The Wire. Now, season three was your favorite. Season four is my favorite. And even though sometimes it's hard because season three is so excellent and amazing, I still side with season four because I think, well, one, I mean, I'm naturally interested in what's going on with our education system. And Everything that we learn about the educational system through the course of this season are things that we all see every day, things I certainly personally experienced uh, going to public school pretty much my whole life. And it highlights what a disservice that we're doing to children, how we're literally handicapping them from the beginning and what that looks like once they become adults. So I think it's it's vital because everybody says like education is important. Education is important. It's because it has become such a catch all phrase and just sort of an empty statement. And in this particular uh, season, we understand why education is important. And just from an acting standpoint, the fact that you have such young, incredible actors. I also think this is the most heartbreaking season of The Wire. I mean, to be honest, you made a great observation comparing Naaman, Randy, uh, Mike, and and Daquan. Uh, I hate calling him Dookie. I hate the word Dookie, by the way. I think it's like one of the most ridiculous words ever. I got you. <laughs> you know, it's a, I got a, a, sl- a slight tangent. Um, is I think the two two of the worst words to describe sort of, you know, kind of um, off color things. Dookie and Coochie, the worst two words ever. Those are the Coochie. worst. Oh, that's terrible. Coochie has a special place in my heart. <laughs> 
Well, I bet, but like, I, 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 uh, I hate that word. Uh, it's disgusting. So, and I got one, and it's disgusting, man. It's like, <laughs> not, not mine, but the word itself. I'm like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. That is funny, right? Right? It's like what kind of? I ain't in third grade. Like I want right. to look like as a grown woman saying dookie or coochie. Like that's ridiculous, right? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so because of, they deliver such powerful performances, and you made like a just a dead on observation a moment ago on the podcast, comparing the innocence of what we see in this season versus what we saw in season one. Um, you know, a little bit of slash two with those uh, sort of, um, they weren't as young as... They, they were slightly older. Slightly older. But, you know, talk about what those differences are and why and, and why you made that observation about the differences between the kids then and the kids now. Because those kids were, we're going to learn this, this term later on in this, in this season, those kids were seasoned, right? So, so when you look at Poot and Bodie and Wallace, D was attempting to pull Wallace out of something, right? D was attempting to, when he was talking about Wallace going to school and something like that, he was attempting to pull Wallace out of something. These kids aren't quite in it yet. They are, but they're just playing right now, right? They're doing it for extra money. They're doing this. They are being groomed by the street the street and the lifestyle and all this, it's grooming them. They're being groomed to understand what it is that they can't do, what it is that they can do, and the lives that they have to sort of lead. And watching them get groomed, right? Watching them turn into slowly what they, it humanizes the game itself. Because before this, the game seems like this entity, this being, this thing, this cold, still sort of systemic failure, right? But the game has a heartbeat. The game has a pulse. The game itself, it doesn't have any feelings, but it definitely has emotions. And that's, that's, it's different, right? It's happy, it's sad, but, not, but it doesn't feel anything, right? And you start to kind of see that in these kids because in getting into the game, right, which is what we're going to see eventually happen to them, different parts of their personalities are exaggerated different parts of who they are start to get leaned on. Like just one facet of Randy becomes everything that Randy is. Just one facet of Michael, who Michael is now, becomes everything that Michael is. Just one facet of Naaman, who Naaman is, becomes everything that Naaman is, right? And it's interesting just to kind of see how that happens and how all of these different, especially in the character of Michael, who had a bunch of different, who we're going to see has a bunch of different ways that he could go. Just how the street acts as the adult almost in this situation that grooms them to the life that they end up having. But right now, they're blank. They're pliable. They're kids. They're, by the way, they're still involved in a lot of stuff that's violent and obviously terrible, right? They're getting in fights. They're, they're stealing cars. They're doing all of this stuff. But it's really right now just for fun. And in a minute, it's not going to be. Yeah, and I think I'm wondering if the way to look at this this group of kids, naming and everybody, is they're almost like the prequel to Bodie and Poot, and to some degree Wallace, even though he always felt like the more innocent, naive, wide-eyed one, despite the fact that he was in such a mature role of being a father figure to a bunch of abandoned kids. And even with that, he still, there was an innocence about uh, Wallace, which is why his death was so hard. But it's almost like we're seeing in real time just kind of how these kids who, you know, are just boys. I mean, you're just aware of the fact that they're boys, even with despite the things that we will see them become involved with. You're, you never... And that to me is one of the brilliant things about season four is like you see their whole lives. You see their home life, you see their school life, and you see what they're like on the corners. None of them, except for Naaman, are kind of in the game, right? Not really. Not really. You know, it's like on the edges of such game. Correct. They're they know what's going on. They dabble, but not really. Like Randy's not in the game. You know what I'm saying? He's right. just around it, right? And the same thing with Michael at this point, like he's just kind of in the backdrop, but knows what's going on. Naaman is the only one who has some connection 
to the game, which, you know, we'll figure out. And even know. his connection to the game, you know, his, his it's not direct. Yeah, he he's play, he's still just dabbling. He's playing. He's being a kid. He's part time and he's not like by the time we met Poot and Bodie and Wallace, it was they were wake fully up. in it. They were in it. Wake right. up, come to work, clock out, come home. This is life. These kids aren't quite there yet. No. So the other thing, too, about season four, we have to look at the the backdrop in which this this takes place. As you talked about earlier and alluded to, is that there was a gap between season three and season four. There was a big gap. That was because season three was supposed to be the end of The Wire. And then suddenly they come back with season four after everything got right with, with HBO. There was also a different marketing tool that they used with season four as opposed to previous seasons. They actually sent out episodes to critics. They tried to drum up a lot of marketing, a lot of publicity for this season, which is something they really hadn't done with the previous seasons. And this season, uh, when they were shooting it, it also is the same time that Hurricane Katrina happened. And that also, you know, kind of added a different level of edge, not necessarily to the storyline, which you don't know anything about Katrina watching this, but there were people involved in the shooting of The Wire who also had lost things in New Orleans, who had lost, you know, their homes and had family members who were in jeopardy. So all of this is coming on. And this is where David Simon got the idea to do Treme, is that it happened then, where the bubblings of the idea first started. So even still, like season four, as I've told you guys before, season two was actually the highest rated season of the, of the Wire. But the premiere, there was much more anticipation around the the restart of The Wire because people thought that it was ending. So those are sort of the backdrop of like how, what happened when this season actually premiered for uh, HBO. It's a bold risk that they were taking with not only hinging a series of the foundation of it on child actors, some of which where this is their, I mean, most of them, this is their first gig, really, right? So they're really new to this. But also continue with the theme of having real people play the characters they represented, like Snoop. Snoop is a real person, okay? And so having David Simon always like to have that sense of realness, not just with the locations, with the actors themselves, I think he felt like if people could feel it, if they could believe these people, that they could, they could teach them, quote, unquote, how to act. But they just had to, they could always sell the authenticity and the realness of it. And that was a big bonus point for them. But yeah, I mean, this is, I would argue this is probably the most depressing season of The Wire. And I don't mean that in in ultimately a bad way, but I think it just kind of is. Right. Yeah, I mean, after this season, it was just like... Man, I just don't even know where we go from here as a world, as a society, as humans. What? I'm like, I don't, I don't even know what we do after this. It was like, damn, yeah. man. Like, <laughs> so the the you know, as bad as as Wallace and how that situation uh, concluded, I think there are two situations in this one that are as bad as worse than Wallace. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, yeah, I think so as well. And and one of the reasons why is because you. With Wallace, with what happened to him, his troubles were over. And there are situations in this one where you get the feeling where things happen to these kids and their troubles are just starting. Yes. That's I mean, I think that's a major difference is that we're seeing we're seeing the the root of them, but we're also know that by the way some of these stories conclude, that they're just lost and there's like nothing you could do about it. Like that's the resignation. I think the the wire wants to leave you with a certain amount of resignation, but I think you get left with even more resignation in season four than you do in maybe some of the other seasons. All right, well, let's get to what were some of your favorite scenes in episode one, which is titled, I don't know if I said this earlier, Boys of Summer. Okay, well, there's a couple of scenes. Um, number one, obviously, one of the best scenes to really introduce a character. We had seen her before. You really get a sense of Snoop, who Snoop is, in the opening scene here where she buys the drill. The DX460 is fully automatic with a 27 caliber charge. 27 caliber, huh? Man, shit. I say no tiny ass 22. Where on those drop a nigga plenty of days, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna go with this right here, man. How much I owe you? 669 plus tax. No, no, you, you just pay at the register. No, man, you go ahead and handle that for me, man. And keep the rest for your time. This is $800. It's 
So what, man? You aren't that bump like a motherfucker, man. Keep that shit. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think of when you think about how all the C- other characters get introduced, even the dramatic introduction of Brother Muzon, even Omar, like she by far and away has the best in- real introduction of all of them. Right. You get a complete sense of who her character is after she buys this. She's lethal. She's generous. She's respectful. She's uh, knowledgeable. She's fierce. She's humble. She's all of those. She takes the time to learn everything. Okay. She learns everything without trying to impose herself. She takes the knowledge, which is probably what made her so good at her job, right? She takes the knowledge, she takes it all from him, right? Without even trying to like, uh, you know, bug back or talk to him or she accepts it all. She she takes his word for it. She injects her knowledge base into it, makes a little connection with him, then afterwards pays for it in the way that she would pay and then tips him crazy. <laughs> right, he's like, you earned that bump like a motherfucker. <laughs> you earned that bump like a motherfucker. You did a good job. Right. So here it is. It's much like at the beginning of Reservoir Dogs, right? At the beginning of Reservoir Dogs, you learn everything you need to know about Steve Buscemi's character by the fact that he doesn't want to tip the, ma- the waitress, right? He's arguing about why you shouldn't have to tip the waitress. And you're like, this person is lacking for some reason. You know what I mean? Just is a this person is just lacking for whatever reason, swarming, whatever. With Snoop in this situation, it's completely different. Like, you come away with this person has a pretty 360 deg- degree kind of life, kind of cool, kind of knowledgeable, kind of all of this stuff. They just happen to be a killer. <laughs> it makes it seem like all of that stuff, the killing part of it is very matter of fact. I I kill people for a living. And I'm going in there to get the best possible drill so that it doesn't work out. It's just, it's just my job. I'm a full, like, it's a scene for a full human being and not just somebody who kills people. So that's why it's so effective. So I think, and this is another constant theme in The Wire, is that they have a, do a great job of giving people who morally are sort of repugnant, right? Because she kills people for a living. But she gives them a... but. David Simon, I should say, gives them a code. Like that's to me is what struck me about that scene is that there's a code that is revealed about Snoop. She respects hard work. She respects hard work. Right. And so this guy wasn't trying to game her. And she not only respects hard work, she respects people who are direct and tell her what it is and don't bullshit. And he tells he, he, he asked her, he's like, do you, do you get what I'm talking about right correct. now? She goes, yeah, I follow. Yep. Well, a lot of people would have been like, a lot of people when he asked him, like, yeah, I'm, you think I'm stupid? He's like, no, you get what I'm talking about? She's like, yeah, I follow. Just it told so much about the character. Yeah, and and he never talked down to her, even though it was clear. It, I don't think it was clear that she was a killer, but it's just that he respected the fact that she knew so much about calibers. And even though she had a very colorful way of explaining this, I mean, I'm sure he knew she wasn't exactly on the right side of the law, but like... He didn't, I promise you this, he didn't realize that the interaction was completely over. Right. Like, she goes into that little deal about 
the twenty twos and stuff like that. He still was like, is she saying what she thinks she's saying? But then after she pays cash, says, "Hey, you go up and take care of it. You do the change." That's when he's probably thinking, huh. So like, like even in that, it was just two people. It was very transactional. I just, I, I love that scene. That's one of my favorite scenes. I think it might be the best scene in this episode. Honestly, I think it probably is. I think it is as well. I think it is. As All well. right, what were some others, man? Um, obviously. The piss balloon fight. <laughs> the it piss shows. caper. <laughs> I tell you why the piss balloon fight is so is, is such a great scene because it shows both. It's a it's a it's a illustration of the tug of war that it is between being a kid in that situation, right? They have a beef with some kids from the terraces, right? They're gonna throw piss balloons on them. That's something that kids would do. We never threw piss balloons on people. That was a little too far, but you know, water balloons stuff like that. That's something kids would do. But after that, what happens after that is a stark reminder of the fact that they're not typical kids. They don't just get into fights. They get beat with beans and bats and bricks and bottles. You know what I mean? Something that could kill somebody. Somebody could have very easily been killed. And you have to define yourself in those moments. And after that scene where Michael kind of, without great, great, great acting by Mac, by the way, Great acting by Matt. When Michael, when they're at the ice cream truck, right? And Michael is checking Damon without actually checking him, without actually saying it. It's because he failed in the moment that his friends really needed him, which is a violent situation. So that scene right there shows the push-pull tug-of-war between them being kids and them growing up in a violent life-or-death moment-to-moment area. I love it. I like that. Part of that scene is when Naaman screws up. But I also like Lex Lex killing fruit is just it's a huge scene for a lot of reasons, right? Looking at. <laughs> Crazy. I mean, like I'm really gonna get that motherfucker around the woodline. What's up, Patrice? It's a very, I mean, it's one of the more violent <laughs> scenes in The Wire because it just, it's, it takes you um, completely by surprise because Bodhi had just told him, like... Don't do it. Don't do it. You need to let that shit go. And, you know, clearly he couldn't. Right. Um, and then just seeing Marlo kind of on top when he's talking to all of his lieutenants and stuff like that. And when he's saying, don't just go kill everybody... You know what I mean? That doesn't work for us. He's saying, don't just go kill everyone. That doesn't work for us. He's saying, you know, drop one of theirs one for one. It's like, I don't want the corner. I don't want anything. That shows you that Marlo has, in at least in a way, grown into his role of being the number one guy in West Baltimore. The other thing that, getting back to the piss caper, that I really, um, that is interesting about that scene, which also shows, as you said, that tension between being caught in a serious world and a childlike world, there's obviously some tension, not just between Mike and Naaman, but also between Dookie and Naaman, right? And right. so um, when Naaman says, they can't whoop on Dookie like that, only we can whoop on Dookie like that. Oh, only we can whoop on Dookie like that, <laughs> Yeah, yep. yeah, that's something, that's child logic in a nutshell. I mean, really, it's not just children. The adults feel that way too. It's like, yeah, I can beat my cousin's ass, but you can't. And that's just the, you know. My sister got a big ass head. <laughs> I can tell my sister about her big ass head. Ebony Lathan has a big ass head. Your head is big. I don't hear nobody else talk about my sister's big ass head. She got a big dome. My sister got the strongest neck muscles in the world. You know why? Why? Because they got to carry around that big ass head. That's why. But no, I don't want nobody else. Nobody else can talk about it. Right. Uh, so did you nickname your sister something because of the big head? I never used to tell her that, man. I would say that, like, when we got some distance between us. You know, my <laughs> sister beat the shit out of me one time. Like, my sister... Van Lathan sidebar, love it. <laughs> like, my sister beat the shit out of me one time, like, because I was a, just being a kid trying to play, like, uh, NWA wrestling. I was Sting. So she's walking out of the kitchen. And you know how Sting used to do the move where he would run and put his shoulder into people to spear? Mm -hmm. And so I, I I did the spear to her. It's like, oh, you know, whatever, knocked her down, whatever. It's been kids being kids. You got to beat the shit out of me. Put a scratch on my face, by the way, that's still there. She scratched me and it was still there. My mom came home and when my mother came home, she looked at me and she was like, uh, you know, hey, boy, how you doing? But she couldn't see it. 
So I remember I, in my most Takashi 69 moment, just very dramatically turned my head like, I'm okay, mama, so she could see the scratch, and she lost it. And here's the thing about this. That was my first and only encounter with snitching. Forget about the nine years at TMZ. That was my first and only encounter with snitching. I never snitched when I worked there. I was only out to look out for people. But I'll I, I tell you like this. Because I got beat after she got beat. I, she got whooped for scratching me, and I got whooped for telling. I feel like that's justice. I feel like that's justice. Like, the, there were two wrongs right. committed. It's like, she whooped up on you, and the other one was that you told. Yeah, my, my dad my dad was so disappointed. My dad was like, you get in a fight with your sister, and you come back, and you run, and you tell your mama? What are you? You want, you want to go use? I'm not going to tell you what he said. But like, <laughs> I, but, yeah, imagine, I, want I want everybody to love my father. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> yeah, he's, oh, he's a 65-year-old guy. He's born in 1955, so, you know, it's different. But no. So I say all that to say, all right. I can't remember where we were. Where were we? Oh yeah, no, we you we were just sidebarring, or you were just sidebarring, and I don't remember what it was, but it was a very well told, well timed story. Um, yes, yes. Love my sister. Oh no, we were talking about uh, families, right? So it it tells you that that's how they feel about Dookie. They're not gonna let anybody else get on Dookie, but they can get on Dookie all they want. I will, although I will say that Naaman tends to, and we're going to see this play out over the course of this season as well, Naaman tends to take out his weaknesses, his personal feelings on other people. Um, and Dookie seems to be the person at the beginning who is going to get the brunt of what Naaman, when Naaman feels bad about himself. Yeah, I got some trivia on that, and I'm actually going to save it for when we discuss the next episode because I feel like it's more prevalent. Um, for that one. In terms of other uh, great scenes, I love the scene of when Norman is in the car with Carcetti and they're talking about the black vote. And Norman says to Carcetti, Black folk been voting white for a long time. You come correct, we listen. It's y'all that don't never vote black. And he brings up the fact, and this is true, that a Democratic presidential nominee hasn't carried 50% of the white vote since Lyndon B. Johnson. And that is a fact. Wow. Yeah, and that that is true. Or rather, he doesn't bring that up, but that's what he's alluding to when they say that. Because, yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's certainly been the case. It's like not just, uh, obviously, we've only had one Black president, but the fact that as there has been an increasing level of civil rights and equality in our society, there is a direction, a trend in which the white vote has gone, which he, that was what he was alluding to in that, in that speech when Carcetti was like, you're going to vote for me, right? And he was looking for real undecided. And I believe he would probably vote against him too. Right, yeah. Even though he's working for him because again, he's like racial solidarity. That's number one. <laughs> Sorry, man. <laughs> so uh, I thought that was good. I also thought another good scene was when Bodie was lecturing Naaman about his work ethic. Hey, B. What's up? Um, I want to know if I could leave early because me and the fellas went to go down to Mar Army for some back-to-school stuff. What you need back-to-school stuff for? Your ass stay suspended. Come on, stop playing, B. Damn, y'all. Youngins don't got a scrap of work ethic nowadays, man. If it wasn't for his pops, I wouldn't even bother. You know, and, and this is another thing that's, like, kind of different between these two groups of kids. Bodie's an old head now. Bodie is an OG. He's seasoned. He's, a, he's on an independent label right now, so he knows that he doesn't have the luxury of having people work for him that don't actually work. And yeah, and so he's telling him like, yo, if you, you got to really be in this, which is another constant theme that we will see with Naaman in particular. But, you know, as you said, back in the day or back in season one, Poot, him, even Wallace, until for other reasons, he started to get disengaged. They were there every day like it was a full-time job. And this new generation ain't quite the same. <laughs> right, yeah, it's new young whippersnappers. They don't, they don't want to work for nothing. Now, uh, let's move on to what aged the worst, or I'm sorry, what aged the best? Uh, Tim's. I saw a lot of Tim's in this episode, and we know that according to a lot of different major, major publications out there, Tim's just came back. <laughs> according to Yahoo, Kamala Harris bought Tim's back. Tim, Tim's were cool, uh, during this time of the wire, but uh, 
Shout out to Kamala. She just she just made Tim's cool again. Ha 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 ha. However, we don't know. Okay, man, I need you to look look at that. I mean, the the best part about her deplaning was the way she deplaned, like a boss, right? But take a close look at the shoes. I am not convinced. I don't think those are Tim's. Yeah, the sole doesn't match. The sole, the sole doesn't match. Ooh. That was not a double entendre, by the, the way. The soul <laughs> doesn't match. I have two pairs of Tim's. Oh, I have three pairs of Tim's. And like it, it's something about the soul that's not right. Now, unless she has now, Greta, I, I haven't the great thing about Tim's, especially if you get those um that she has, the construction boot ones, you only have to buy one a pair every 10 years. Them shits last, right? I haven't had to buy a pair of Tim's in probably like 10 or 12 years. So I don't know if like the new 2020 Tim's have a different soul, but that soul doesn't look like the soul of Tim's that I have. Yeah. I mean, I got big feet. So Tim's are like, you know, I always look like it. My, I wear a size 14. So when, I, when I'm in my Tim's, I look like a Tim. I look like a walking Timberland shoe. They're they so big, right? Tim's are really not, they are so big. One time I was around Al Harrington, shout out Al Harrington, and he had some Tim's on. I'm like, God damn, nigga, take them off. Like, they, like, it looked like you dominating the earth every time you stomp. I'm like, get rid of the Tim's, Al. Shout out to Viola. But I saw people, this was a Tim heavy episode. <laughs> so I saw a lot of Tim's in this episode, probably because. It's getting to be almost school time in Baltimore. It's September Fall. or something like that. Fall is coming. Even though it looked it looked a little bit like it was still summery. Maybe they kind of getting their Tim's out the box a little quick, quick, quick. Get them out of the box. Uh, but Tim's age well. Um, beefing over girls. <laughs> that ages exceptionally well. Exceptionally well. Beefing over girls aged well. As well. And those are two of the things that I had. Um, along those same lines, what I had, oh, well, it's two things I had for aging well. One is that you notice, okay, every season of The Wire, the, the drug on the street is called something different. In this season, the drug on the street is called Pandemic, which wow. aged exceptionally well. Wow, too well. Uh, too well, uh, uh, sadly. And the other thing along the same lines of beefing over women aging well is beefing over uh, over women based off a of misogynistic, toxic masculinity mentality about ownership of said woman. OK, because that whole thing started be, uh, based off uh, Lex having a perceived level of ownership over his baby mama that he did not have. <laughs> okay. And so that unfortunately ages too well. Cause it, it's so weird because I think I was having this discussion, I feel like with my husband, because he was talking about a situation a friend of his is in. And he was saying he wouldn't care, you know, if one of his homeboys dated like an ex, but if he dated like like a baby mama, that would be different. And I'm like, I don't understand. I mean, I under I mean, I understand from like a parenting standpoint, like you need to know who's around your children, but he wasn't saying it from that standpoint. I'm like, you do realize a baby mama is not somebody you actually married. Y'all may have a, you know, y'all may have a lifelong commitment. Oh, first of all, I like it does. You know, I don't have no baby mamas. All the exes are fair. It's game. like neither does my husband. He has none. We are speaking hypothetically. <laughs> yeah, but I will tell you this: I see the distinction. Really, a baby mama is like a relative. You see, like you're a just baby blinking mama. right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm saying about like, but you don't think so? Well, a baby mom. Okay, I, there's a blood tie because you have a child in common. Yeah, like it's yeah. forever. Mm-hmm. It's forever, and like that's somebody like one of my exes. It might be somebody that I never have to see again. You know what I'm saying? Except for you, but like I have to see you as my friend, right? Then I have to go see her, right? And then all the time, forever. All the time, forever. And there's a, the, the ties get to, by the way, I wouldn't care either. I could see it being different though. Just like, just like, I'll give you another example. Dating an ex is different than dating an ex-spouse. Ex-girlfriend and ex-wife, two different things. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's just a little bit, the commitment is higher, so the eh is a little higher too. But look, still though, nobody owns anyone Go do your thing. I will tell you this, though. This, I will say this about this. I used to tell my homeboys this when they would get into these situations because it was always funny when it happens because it's going to happen, right? It's going to happen. Because once again, 
there's, there's loyalty within the sexes, but there's no loyalty outside of the sexes. And what I mean by that is that the girl doesn't care, just like the guy doesn't care that the girls were friends and the girl doesn't care that the guys were friends. So there's loyalty Correct. within it. So like everybody understands why it's weird, but nobody cares. You know, you know what I mean? Right. right. But I, will, I used to tell my boys this. I used to be like, what is the purpose of having friends if you can't pass up a woman or something like that that's going to hurt your friend's feelings? Like, what's the point of having friends then? I remember two of my boys were going at it for a long time. My homeboy, my homeboy was going, man, it's just some, what you, it's just some, I mean, what he was saying, it's just some pussy, man. I'm like, but it's going to hurt his feelings. Right. So what's the right. point of having friends if you're just going to like play video games and basketball with a nigga that's going to go ahead and fuck over your first chance he gets? I'm like, I get what you're saying. Go do what you do. But I'm like, that's kind of what a fr the purpose of a friend is having one more person who won't hurt you. Right. Uh, you know? Well, so. and there's the, some of it too is like, some of it is that y'all aren't necessarily honest about when you've been hurt. That's true. You're and never honest. Never honest, right? It's like, oh, this is my baby mama, man. Fuck her. You know what I'm saying? Quick to say that till she start fucking one of your friends. Then it's and a then whole that, other story. Then, that, that's exactly what happened in this case. Oh, man, you know, I do what I do, baby. So do whatever, whatever. And so he was like, oh, yeah? Shite. Right. Hey, whatever, man. whatever. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Van, hit him up. Tell him to come over. We want, we're going to watch Belly. We're going to watch Belly that night. Van, tell him to come over. we watch Belly. I knew what that meant. <laughs> Anytime Belly was put on in that apartment, I knew it was about to come next. You were, you really wouldn't even make it to Tommy's changing his life around before, you know, it was going down. You wouldn't even make it to them going to Nebraska. Belly and daiquiris was an aphrodisiac. That was an Belly? aphrodisiac. Belly. Belly. Ah. Belly. What? Belly. I, okay, in, in my day, Van, it was Love Jones. You knew when Love Jones, ah, see, when they know, put in Love were. Jones, they wasn't, like, you wasn't going to get to the end. You wasn't going to get to the part where they in the rain declaring each, other, each other's love. Y'all were actually in love. Like, we were on some belly energy. <laughs> so, like, 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 you know what I'm saying? We were like, that was different. You know what else we used to watch with them? Just real quick as a sidebar. Clueless. You say Clueless? Clueless. Get okay. some girls over I to mean, the house. It's a romantic comedy. You go get some girls going to help you put on Clueless. They go, oh, these guys are... And before you know it... Clueless as a closer. Wow. Clueless clueless worked. I never would have guessed that. Shout out to Donald Faison. Shout out to Alicia Silverstone. Clueless doesn't make me feel sexy, but okay, whatever works for you. Not shout out to Stacey Dash, but everybody else involved. Amy Heckerlin, Paul Rudd, shout out to Ant-Man. Everybody else. All right. Let's uh, talk about what age the worst in this episode. You know, I had a problem figuring out what age the worst in this episode because it was moving so quickly. I had a problem. I really didn't have anything. Did you have anything? I did. I have a couple things. Okay. Now, this one I'm I'm sort of borderline on, and I feel like you can, because this joke was much funnier in the among men than maybe among women, like we got it and be like, ha-ha, but y'all acted like it was the funniest shit of all time. Did these nuts jokes age poorly or well? I'm insanely offended by this question. <laughs> I just, I'm asking. I'm like insanely offended. Uh, like, uh, uh, like these nuts jokes are, they are timeless. That these nuts are, it, they, like we do it all the time. As a matter of fact, it ages it really ages well. I'm so sad that I didn't put that on what age. Well, it ages perfectly. You know why it ages so good? Because there's been enough time since the time where it was really in vogue that you can really get one off right now. Yeah, because everybody has their guard down. Yeah, every, nobody's thinking about it, right? I remember one time when I was at TMZ, Snoop asked, like, uh, like Snoop asked one of our camera guys, and they said, hey, do you listen to CDs or tapes? And he goes, well, CDs, of course. And Snoop was like, well, CDs, nuts in your mouth. And everybody went fucking bananas because when you get somebody, when you get somebody, the feeling of elation that you get as juxtaposed to the feeling of utter fucking shame that they have for having fell for it is undefeated. So no, these nuts jokes dated. They 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 their time. All right, I said it was borderline. Now I now the updated version from what I'm from what social media has taught me in general is Bofa, right? And I will say one of the five funniest things I've ever seen on Twitter 
shout out to my man Roland Martin. That's the homie, Uncle Roland. But Uncle Roland got got so bad on this that, like, literally go look up the tweet. It's like, <laughs> it's so epic. And I felt bad for laughing, but I didn't at the same time. He was talking about, it was like a serious issue. It was super, you know, I mean, it was something with, like, Black people, oppression, equality, something along those lines. And somebody tweeted, like, did you ask Bofa who, his opinion? And he was like, who's Bofa? both of these nuts. And I swear, I was like, oh, man down, cold tears situation. I'm going to find this tweet and send it to you. It was like so epic. And I was like, oh my God, Roland may not ever live that down. So, all right, I can see what you're saying. All right, in terms of what else aged the, the worst, when the officers are going through training in this one, a lot of terrorist Muslim jokes, they're getting off. Yes, aged terrible. Those right. did not age very well. And naming when he handed Dookie and Michael a dollar to get some ice cream. That shit did not age well because you can't get a Horrible. dollar worth of shit. You know what's crazy about that is? I got to take your word for it because I don't even know I don't even know how much it the, the ice cream would cost at the ice cream. When's the last time you seen an ice cream truck? Been a while. You know what? I used to run by the ice cream truck depot when I lived downtown. Damn, they got a depot? Okay. Oh man, it's depots. I never knew this. It's like there's places where it, all the ice cream trucks congregate and get their ice cream. And there was one downtown I used to run by. But that's the last time I haven't seen one in action in a long time. Yeah. I it's mean, LA, you know what I mean? Yeah. And unfortunately now, because of the pandemic, it'd probably be a long, they, those things might've gone the way of blockbuster video. Uh, and, j- and just even before that, I mean, kids don't play on the streets anymore. No, they don't. No. I mean, pre-pandemic, that was the case as well. And so not just the price of ice cream has aged poorly, but also the presence of ice cream trucks has aged very poorly because they're just not a thing anymore. I don't see them as much. Maybe, no. maybe, maybe in other places though. I mean, look, I saw the ice cream truck depot, so they must be somewhere. Right, because if they got a depot, somebody's still in. Yeah, I just haven't seen them. Yeah. Okay, so those are the things that aged the worst for me. Uh, now let's move on to things that we should file away for later in this episode. A lot of big. So some of these are big conceptual things, and some of them are kind of individual things to pay attention to. So what did you have for file this away for later? I'm gonna go through them quick because there were so many. Kevin, uh, little Kevin talks yep. to Randy. Yep. Yeah, little Kev- Kevin en- enlisting Randy to set up Lex's murder, which I don't know if you made this connection. To me, it was very reminiscent. It was it was the same thing of what happened to Wallace. Exact same thing. Exact same thing. Exact same thing. What happened to Wallace? Lex shoot Lex uh, shoots fruit. Yeah. Um, a big one. The Snoop and the nail gun is a father's that's away for later. Yep, and them storing bodies. Period in the row houses. Yep, and I have that too in, in the row houses. We see Herc is now working for Mayor Royce. That's a father's away for immediately later. <laughs> right. Uh, and the way that, that works. But there were so many fathers away for later like in this episode. Uh, you mentioned it before. I would say the tense dynamic between Michael and Naaman. That's definitely yeah. a father's away for later. And Michael coming to the rescue of Dookie. Big father's away for later. Like that's a continual theme. And it leads to the story of these kids taking some really interesting directions. As for uh, trivia, so that nail gun scene that we both love, it took them several hours to shoot because Felicia Pearson, Snoop, was extremely nervous and she kept rushing her lines. And so much to the point where they actually thought it was kind of a mistake to start off the season this way because they didn't think or know she could pull it off. Uh, but they did. One of the things they changed about the scene from how they first shot it and after they looked at it, they didn't think it was right, is that they actually built a replica hardware store. That's what totally changed the scene on his face. Because before, she just was kind of stiff and not feeling comfortable. But once they actually physically put her in the environment of being in a hardware store, it went off without a hitch. Also, as people note from this, the theme song has changed. It's a new new person singing it new people in this case. Uh, in this case, it is a Baltimore children's choir, which goes with the theme. With the theme of the show. Of the show, this this season being about the kids. And so those are kids who are singing it. The first few times that I watched season four, you know who I thought it was singing it? I thought it was India Ari. <laughs> like, I what? I, I know that's so ridiculous, but I was like, I don't know why I thought the voices were similar. And I feel like I just unnecessarily gay, slandered India Ari, who I love, but I don't know why I was thinking it was India Ari, but that's just me. All right, finally, Van, moment of truth. Who did you feel like won this episode? You know why I felt like Michael won? 
The reason why I felt like Michael won is because out of this episode with so many characters that I knew, right? So many characters that I know so much about. The one person out of this episode that I go, damn, I want to know more about that kid is Michael. Mac jumps off the screen. I keep saying Mac, Tristan Wiles, like jumps off the screen as Michael. And his 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 moments, he just he you can tell that the character is ready to wear the load of the entire show. And so when I look at everything moving so fast, I'm like, yo, wasn't all through it, but I'm like, the one character I want to know more about, the way he carries it, the way he looks at people, how confident he is. He's obviously at least the emotional and back emotional leader, the 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 backbone of the group was Michael. So I'd say Michael won. No, that's a, that's a great choice. It's a, even though he's a kid, there's an intensity about him that sure. makes you want to, as you said, know more about him, know what his backstory is. And you could tell of all the kids, he's the one who looks at the world the most maturely. You know, the fact that he was able to call out Naaman for not being there for his friends and having the, frankly, guts and courageousness to do that says a lot about him. And and so just as much as we see what Naaman's insecurities are, we get a hint of them. We also see what Michael's strong points are. Like he's like a leader without even having to be a leader. Like you could tell Naaman thinks he's the leader of this group. But is he really? I would say no, <laughs> you know, um, and, and that continues to play out as this goes along. For me, who won the episode was McNulty and McNulty. And again, this is part of the bravery of doing this season four. McNulty is not the at all the star of season four at this after season three you, people are thinking in their minds that this series is about McNulty maybe because one and three were about McNulty two huge departure four this is another departure season away from McNulty but he's gotten his life together he's with BD you know their kids are all together or at least he seems to be like a functional reasonable well-adjusted adult <laughs> okay finally he has learned after how things unfolded in season three, that the job is not going to save him, which is always the tension with Then his downfall, his crutch. Yes, his crutch is the job. And he has learned to give up his addiction, which is the job. And uh, in a way, he gives it up and it makes him a a, a better police officer, even though he's right. not doing... He's more present. He's more present and he is more of a public servant. Like before, right. even though McNulty was clearly one of the best detectives that they had, much of what he did was about serving himself. Sure. This, now that he's like, got to talk to people and talk to residents and he's interacting with the people in the neighborhood, he's actually learning what public service is. Right. And so this is a real, a real progress made for him personally. So I thought, he uh, won this episode, even though I know much like it always is with McNulty, it's on a, it's on the clock. <laughs> but in this moment, McNulty is winning. Uh, all right. That's going to do it for us for breaking down episode one, Boys of Summer of season four. We'll be back with episode two called Soft Eyes. You know, we had a lot of file this away later moments for that. For this episode, rather, it's a ton in the next one as we begin to get into my favorite season, season four, laying the groundwork for what will be a spectacular finish. So we'll see y'all next time. Thanks for the support. Keep watching The Wire and keep listening to us. 